Our reading today is from John's Gospel, starting at the very beginning, the beginning of chapter 1. You can find it on page 1063 of your church Bibles, and the words are on the screen behind me. Starting at verse 1. The Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And continuing from verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. So we're very happy to introduce Andy Rose, one of our flock, to, to you, who, if you don't know him. Um, and this is, Andy's going to bring a message uh, from John chapter 1, which is, I think has been on your heart for a long time. Yeah, it has. And I'll, I'll just briefly pray for you and let you uh, take over. Great. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together here today, and I pray that you would give Andy the, those words that you've put on his heart to share, and that you would um, help us to take away the things that you want us to take away. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> In the beginning was the Word. Is there a more famous, epic or iconic opening line in the English language. The opening words of a book are without doubt the most important. They set the scene. They set the tone. They prepare us for what is to come. So before we start today's passage, I have a confession. I got a bit distracted and was you know, looking at opening lines from other books. And I thought, this is a fun game, so I'm going to turn it into a quiz this morning. So I'm going to have the opening lines from some books on the screen. I'll read them out as well. And I want you to give me the book and the author. So the first one, Call Me Ishmael. Oh, I hear Moby Dick. Do we have an author as well? Herman Melville, well done, Rihanna. Next one. 
all children except one grow up. Oh, well done. And the author, Maria. Oh, yeah. I heard a J.M. Barry somewhere over there. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Oh, I don't know who got there first, but well done. Yes, Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man... Oh, we have a Pride and Prejudice. Jane Austen. Okay, now we're going to get slightly trickier. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Oof, tough one. Oh, it's epic literature. Do I see a hand up? No. No. It was Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Final one. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. No. It is 1984, George Orwell. Well done, Marilla. Some of these are great opening lines, but frankly, none of them come as close to being as iconic as the opening words of John's Gospel. These words that we hear every Advent. Words are very powerful things. They convey ideas, they convey feelings, they convey emotions. Words have the power to give life or to bring death. They can build up or they can destroy. They can cause hope or they can cause despair. A word can cause hurt or it can bring healing. Words are the basis of all human civilization. Our ability to express our needs, our desires, our ideas, our opinions, our feelings are what hold our entire society together. An empire might stand for a thousand years and then fall on an ill-considered word. A wise word can bring peace. And a foolish word can bring war, destruction, and misery. Words can hold within them truth and justice. Or they can contain lies, injustice, iniquity. A word still on the tongue holds within it the balance of your very destiny. Your trajectory through life, for better or worse, in that moment, uh, hangs on the series of sounds yet to pass your lips. A word let loose can no sooner be called back than can an egg that has been hurled at great speeds. And when it hits its target, the result may be immeasurably messier. If I am doing my job right now, you should be hanging on my every... What's the word I'm thinking of? The Oxford English Dictionary contains full entries for 175,000 words in current use, 47,000 obsolete words, and 9,500 derivative words. Near enough a quarter of a million words. It is believed that by the time you add in technical words, regional variants, and slang, you can triple that figure. There really are a lot of words. But today, 
we are only going to look at one. I hope by now that you have figured out what the topic of today's sermon is. That's right, it's Jesus. Because, as we see in verse 14, Jesus is the Word. Now, I can hear your brains going, I will accept the historical Jesus. I can even accept that Jesus is God. But what kind of crazy-thinking lunatic have they let up to the lexicon this morning who could mistake Jesus, either human or divine, for a word? But we are not talking about a word this morning. We are talking about the words. The Greek word translated here as word is the word logos. And we will hear a lot about the logos this morning. The Greek word logos is very different from our English word, word. Whilst in English, a word is, and I quote from said dictionary, a unit of language consisting of one or more spoken sounds or their written representation. The logos is not like that. The logos is an expression of thoughts, of concept, of idea, of rationality, of order, of logic. You might hear that there. Logos was not the words themselves, but an expression of the intangible things, those things that we all know or feel or experience, but we can't explain in any way except through words. The Logos sums up the invisible things in the universe. To the Greek Stoic philosophers, the Logos was the very essence of God, the very essence of the divine, permeating the universe, animating it, sustaining it. It was the divine idea. It was the divine personality. And this is the word, the Logos of which John is talking. Christianity teaches us that there is one God, but that that one God has three aspects or persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are not three separate gods, like a Jehovah's Witness might claim, but they are different aspects of the one God. Now, this is a mind-boggling idea, especially when you phrase it like that, because we have nothing on earth that we can compare it to. But John does give us a comparison here. Let's replace the word in verse 1 with God's personality. In the beginning was God's personality, and God's personality was with God, and God's personality was God's. We, physically, are not our personality. We are flesh and blood, and our personality most certainly isn't. But our personality is always with us. A personality cannot exist outside of a person. Our personality is always with us. Furthermore, our personality sums up our individuality. And in that sense, we are our personality. Our personality is 
us. And it's the same with the Trinity. John is giving us the analogy that Jesus is the expression of God's personality. They are different, like a personality is not a person. And yet they are the same. They are distinct, yet they can never be separated. Good. So we've made it to the end of verse 1. Only 13 more to go. Except, whoa, 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 hold your horses. We have jumped ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to the beginning and start looking at verse 1 again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Throughout the Bible, God tells us that he has no beginning. He has no ends. That he is, therefore, eternal. He is the Alpha and Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Before the universe, he was. If the universe were to be destroyed in its entirety, he would remain. We are material beings. We exist within time and space. Everything we see is bound to the limits of time and space. Man, in this physical world, has nothing to explain or compare to existence outside of time and space. By profession, I am an experimental particle physicist, and so I am trained to uh, be able to uh, uh, understand and visualize some of the really wacky, crazy things in the universe. I can conceptualize what it means for space-time to be curved around a black hole. I can conceptualize what it means for a subatomic particle to be following multiple paths simultaneously with thought and experimentation, we can understand things way outside our everyday experience. But because we are in the universe, we are still bound to the concept of space and time. But God and the Word, the Logos, his personality, Jesus, are outside the bounds of the universe, outside the bounds of space and time itself. God and his Logos, Jesus, must be outside the bounds of the universe. For if they only existed within it, they could not have created it. They are outside the very bounds of space and time itself. They are eternal, they are Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. But, verse 3, through him, through the Logos, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. God is outside the bounds of the universe. But through his logos, his personality, he created it. 
God is not bound by space and time, but all things within space and time carry the fingerprint of his divine personality, since it was through that, through the Logos, that he created them. God is outside the bounds of space and time, but his personality, his Logos, permeates the universe completely. From beginning to end, from front to back, from top to bottom, from side to side, he, the Logos, is in them. From the smallest subatomic particle to the outer bounds of the universe itself, he, the Logos, the personality of God, is in them. Now let's jump forward to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, God's divine personality, became flesh. Bam! Mind blown! The Logos, the divine personality, the fingerprint that permeates the entire universe, became flesh, became a human being. We say it every Advent, every Christmas, but have you ever considered the enormity of it? God, in all his power, assemble a mass of skin and muscle and tendons and ligaments and nerve cells and organs and blood and bone and instilled into them the fullness of his personality, his attributes, his characteristics, his logos. This is why in Genesis 1 verse 27 it says God created man in his own image. It cannot mean physically, since God is outside the universe and man is well and truly bounded by space and time. Instead, it means that man was created physically so that at the predefined point in history, God might instill in such a body his very logos, his very self, and live as part of his own creation. Have you ever stopped and considered the enormity of it? God created man physically in such a way that at the predefined point in history, he might instill within such a body his logos, his personality, his very self, and live as part of his own creation. The more you think about it, the more mind-blowing it is. He came to live as part of his own creation. And when he did so, he brought with him two things. Grace and truth. At this point, you may be glad to hear that I've literally cut an entire sermon's worth of material on those two topics, but we will come back to them briefly in a moment. 
However, that is the reason that we're now going to make a very quick jump cut to another of John's iconic lines. Verse 5, another one of those lines that we hear every Christmas. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I have heard this preached so many times as, although it's dark, there is still a little light in the corner somewhere. There is still hope. This isn't a Star Wars movie. We are not talking about the light side and the dark side, goodies and baddies, heroes and villains. This isn't a Star Wars movie. This is the Bible. If the dark exists, it is only because the light for a time, lets it exist. The Greek word, translated here as overcome, does not mean to defeat in battle. Rather, it means to seize or to master. So this can mean in an intellectual sense. And this is why sometimes we see this translated as, but the darkness did not comprehend it but I think it fits better in the physical sense of to seize. To mug, to grab hold of and take possession of. A better phrasing would be, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness would not seize it and would not make it its own. John says the same thing in verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The darkness would not receive him and grab hold of him. His own would not receive him. The darkness is not out there. The darkness is not something abstract. It is in each and every one of us. It is any corner of our lives where we try to keep God out, where we refuse to let God's light shine. The light shines on our darkness, but we did not seize it and make it our own. What a condemnation! Each Christmas... When we hear the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it, we shouldn't be thinking, ah, we should be horrified. The Logos, the one through whom everything and everyone was created, came into the world but was rejected. He came with truth, the truth about sin, the truth of the peril that we are in. But we reject that truth because we would rather hear a lie that affirms us. We would rather hear the lie that what we do, our actions, our choices, that these things are up to us. It's my choice. And the only consequences are the consequences that I choose. We would rather hear this, hear that lie, that there is no judgment, that there is no danger, that we are fine just as we are. We would rather hear this than to know that we are a danger to ourselves and to others and that we are so broken that we cannot fix it ourselves. 
This is the truth that Jesus brings. But this truth does not offer us hope at Christmas. This is a a truth loaded with foreboding. This is the truth Jesus brings, but this truth does not bring us joy at Christmas. This truth gives us reason to fear. This is a dark, dark truth. Because it is the truth without the grace that it came hand in hand into the world with. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of truth and grace. In verse 12, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God's. This is the hope that turns the dark, dark truth of our condemnation into a glorious, shining beacon of light. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To anyone who believes in him, who trusts in him, who calls upon his name, he gives the right to become his adopted child. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 5 to 7, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. This is the grace that Jesus brought into the world. This is the grace of God. This is the good news of Christmas. This is the gospel. In him, in Jesus, the word, the logos, the one through whom all things were made, In Jesus, we have redemption through the sacrificial offering of his blood. In him, we have the forgiveness of sins through his sin offering on the cross. The sin offering, as pictured in the Old Testament, had to be completely perfect, had to be completely pure and without sin. Only Jesus, the Logos, the very essence of God himself, was without sin, was was the only one who was perfect, the only one who was wholly righteous. And so only Jesus, he and only he, was the uh, one who could offer the sin offering for the, uh, that was acceptable to pay the sin debt. Only Jesus, the Logos, the divine personality that permeates the universe from beginning to end, from front to back, from top to bottom, from side to side. Only Jesus 
Almighty God, in his omnipotence, could take upon himself the almighty, monumental task of suffering for the sins of the whole world. Only Jesus, the Logos, was God, and is God, and will be God. Only Jesus, being God, was the only one who had all of the attributes that meant he could take upon himself the momentous task of suffering for all sin. Have you ever stopped and considered the enormity of it all? Given that this was his conclusion, no wonder John had to find such an epic opening line. Jesus, the Logos, has come to us. He has come to me. He has come to you. Jesus, the Logos, the Word of God, has brought the truth of God to each and every one of us. Jesus, the Logos, Almighty God himself, took on flesh, went to the cross, and paid the debt for your sin. He paid the debt for my sin. He paid the debt for every sin of every person ever. At the end of his gospel, John gives his reason for writing. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's greatest fear in life was that you would read these words, that you would hear this information, and that you would carry on regardless. John's fear was that this Christmas time, that we would hear the familiar story. That we would hear, listen to the familiar readings. That we would sing the familiar songs and that we would carry on regardless. That we would not seize hold of him, of Jesus, that we would not seize hold of Jesus and make him our own. Jesus, the Logos, has come to us. He has come to me, he has come to you. We are his own, and now we have a choice. On the day of judgment, will we hear the condemnation that he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him? Or will we hear the commendation that we believed in his name and have been given the right to become children of God? This Christmas time, the truth has been made known. The price has been paid. All that remains is to decide what we do with this news. The time is now. The choice is yours. Merry Christmas.
Thanks so much, Andy. And let's respond now in worship.